discovering together the heart of God. We several weeks ago we studied Matthew 9, 35 through 38, and how Christ came, and everywhere He went, He preached the gospel of the kingdom. Everywhere He went, He prioritized the ministry of the gospel by preaching the good news. At the same time, everywhere he went, he healed every disease and sickness. He cast out demons wherever he found them. And what motivated him, what prompted him was compassion, love for people. And we studied where did Jesus get this from? Why did he do this? Well, because he's just like his dad, the father in heaven. His heart is for the lost His heart is for the poor, the orphans, the widows, those who are suffering and dying. Our God is a God of compassion for those who are on the fringes of society. So much so, he identified himself with the poor. In Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses the poor insults God. God says, you are the ones who oppress poor people and you are insulting me because he identified himself with the poor in the world. And so Christ had the heart of God, and he demonstrated that by his preaching of the word to everyone, and then ministry in practical ways to those who are in need. And then we studied last Sunday, and uh, I rarely do this, but if you weren't here last Sunday, and you missed our study on Matthew 25, you need to listen to that sermon. Um, you're not going to know what's going on at Cornerstone if you haven't heard Matthew 25. That's the last sermon that Christ gave to his disciples. And he talked about the sheep and the goats, this great separation that will happen on that great day of judgment. And that was not a parable. That was a predictive prophecy. That event will actually occur. We will one day stand there not only see it, but experience this separation. Well, he will separate everyone into two groups of people, the sheep and goats. The sheep were the ones who were merciful to the hungry, the naked, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, those who were in prison, those who were sick, those who were in need, they showed mercy. And to the other, the goats who will be separated and sent to eternal perdition, those who weren't merciful, who were apathetic, who were callous, who had hard hearts to those who are suffering in the world in their lifetime. And Jesus said that this is the clearest evidence of true faith. What separates true faith from false faith is, were you merciful to the poor? Just like James 2, 13 through 17, (coughs) he said, how do you differentiate true faith from false faith? whether it's accompanied by good works. And what is that work? Is when you have mercy to those who are, who are, who are poor, to those who are in need. I suppose some of you is in your, in your meeting and he's hungry and he's not well clothed. And if all you do is you say to them, I'll pray for you. I'm right, hearts with you, brother. Right, go well, keep well fed and warmed, and yet you do nothing for that person. Does that person have true faith? Right, who is so unmerciful? And John, James 2.13, judgment without mercy will be shown to those who have been unmerciful. So if you've been, uh, your whole life has been self-centered, right, self-worship, you've just been selfish, meeting your own needs, and that was your life, then a specific kind of judgment will be shown to you, a judgment absent of mercy, right? But to the, to the sheep, you've been merciful. God will shower you mercy because you understand the gospel. Right? You understand the gospel, not just what he did for you, but you understand and believe why why God sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins so that all your sins be forgiven. Why would God do that? Because of His love for you. Because of, his un- of, your, of the undeserved mercy and grace for your souls. That's why God sent His Son. That's why Jesus died. And so because you understand that gospel, you'd be full of mercy 
and you will continue to receive mercy for the rest of your eternity. I mean, we've been learning those things, and it's been incredible. People have been talking to me, and after services, weeping together, and what have been what we've been learning, what the, what what it means, and what it means. Like, what does it mean in the scriptures? Is that what it really means? Is that what it's really saying? And then, what does it mean for us? What are the implications of this truth? And two really questions. What does it mean to me, mean for me? And what does it mean for our church? I want to just start by answering those two questions. What does it mean for us individually? What does it mean for you? One brother came, uh, came to me after uh, the Matthew 9 sermon and said, James, I'm kind of perplexed. You know, during your message, I was so struck. I wanted to volunteer to help the homeless. I wanted to go to soup kitchens and volunteer to feed the hungry. I wanted to give away my clothes to goodwill and help clothe those who are not well clothed in this cold, cold weather. But the sermon ended with pray that God would send out his workers instead of going. And you said the last thing God wants is send more legalists to the harvest field. Because if you send out legalists, they'll do it out of their own moral righteousness, their own pride and self-sufficiency, and they'll do it with a judgmental heart, and their righteousness will further separate them from God. And they will use that as a power play against the church and use it to judge others. This is how much I've done for the poor. What have you done? And so, James, I'm confused. Should I not help the soup kitchens? Should I not go help the homeless? <clears throat> my answer to him and my answer to you is the same. No, go do those things. It is good. Right? You shouldn't not do good works in the world. But what the Bible prescribes to us is much more beautiful than that. It's much more comprehensive. Right? As, as legalists, what we want to do is we want to partition our lives and have mercy ministry hour. Saturday afternoons, twice a month, right? Feed the hungry. Right? Tuesday nights, go out to the streets, blanket drive. Once a month, send out a check, sponsor a child through Compassion International, which is all good things. But the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. The Bible tells us, and I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is a, it's a great place to start, where this man came upon robbers and he was beaten up on the side of the road. And two men see this need and they walk right on by. And who are they? They are it's a priest and a Levite. Why? Because they've got to go to the temple to sacrifice. Because they're busy. They've got a lot to do. They've they a lot of work to do. They pass right on by. Who is the one that stops to care for this man? It's a Samaritan. The hero of this story is not the Jewish, Jewish Levite, it's not the priest, it's Samaritan. The Samaritan were despised in the nation of Israel. They were the dregs of society. They were the half-breeds who were, who were unorthodox, had wrong theology. Right? So much so, Jews would pray, thank you God, I'm not a Samaritan. Remember, Jesus was doing miracles. Pharisees were so angry at him, they called him, he's a Samaritan. Right? That was a derogatory term. Assigned to Christ. And who is a hero of the story? He is the Samaritan. And what did he do? He showed mercy. Jesus said, who is the one that was the good neighbor? And the, the, the lawyer had to say, it's the man who was merciful. So with that parable, we see that the good works of the Christians is not to be put on our schedule, on our outlook calendar. It should be a condition of our hearts where we are merciful and whatever need we see, we are made aware of, we respond in compassion. So this Samaritan was not out trying to do good works. It was not his compassion ministry day. He was on his way to do work and he saw a man in need and he didn't just, you know, send the check. He didn't say, oh, you know, come back next week. That's my time to serve. He didn't just, you know, check, check a box in his tax return. He involved himself. Right? He got messy. He sacrificed himself. He burdened himself with this man's need. And he got involved. And he loved him and served him. Right? And so that's what this means to us. 
That's what the gospel means to us. That, that our affluence is killing us. Right? This upper middle class Christianity is destroying our faith. It's making us more insular, more self-centered, right? more prideful, enjoying the blessings rather than the, the giver of the blessing, and it is rotting our souls. And the way out is not, again, compartmentalizing our lives and, and giving a portion, a set amount, you know, once a week, once a month, or a certain percentage. No, it's to be, have the gospel so rooted in us that we become so merciful that we care for people as we encounter them, that we are to ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to open our ears, have our hearts be sensitized to those who are around us who have have needs. As it stands, we are blind. We don't see any needy people. They're all around us. We are blind. We are deaf. We hear of all these needs, and we are just, we're deaf, I mean. And our hearts are just hard and are callous because we have so much of stuff. Right? That's how radical the gospel is. And that's what it means to us. <clears throat> and Jesus says, whatsoever you do the least of my of the brethren, you're doing it to me. Right? It's not compassion ministry. It's not social work. It is love for Jesus. Right? I am that one who's in need. I'm the one you're hearing of who is suffering. That's what it means to us individually. Now, the second question is, what does it mean to us? What does it mean for our church? Now, the answer to this question came in, came about in a surprising way. Um, uh, we're on our way back after our trip to Czech and India uh, a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, our jet lag was crazy because we spent five days in Czech and then five days in India, two different time zones, right? And we're leaving from Delhi, India at 10 p.m. at night. And then we get on the flight at 1 a.m., 11-hour flight to Amsterdam. That was our window of opportunity. We tried to sleep then, right? It was so hard to sleep in a flight, right? It was so hard. We get to Amsterdam, five-hour layover in Amsterdam from 1 a.m. to 6 in the morning. And then we get on the final flight from Amsterdam to LAX. <coughs> it's an hour delay, so it's supposed to be an 11-hour flight. This is a 12-hour flight. Halfway point of that flight, I'm dying. Right? Literally, I'm dying. Right? I'm, you guys understand? I'm dying. Right? <laughs> right? Literally, I'm about to like just die because it just so you know you know when you're dying on a flight when you put your pillow in front of you and try to lean against that TV screen. <laughs> And you know you're just miserable when you're in that position. So a happy flight. I look over to Bob who's sitting in front of me, right? So it's like Bob and I have a real unique relationship. We love each other, but we know like how to like travel together. So we don't sit next to each other. It's kind of like, uncomfortable, right? Right? So we sit front and back, right? Because <laughs> he's got an aisle seat, I got an aisle seat. When I have to go, doesn't have to get up. So we sit, that's how we align ourselves, right? So he's sitting in front of me. I look over, and you know what Bob's doing? He's reading a book. Man, my view of Bob went up several notches. <laughs> what a godly man. He, I can't even, I haven't cracked open a book. I'm just watching movies because I want to get into this like, hallucinogenic state where I forget time and I'm hoping I land in LAX. I'm trying to like just forget anything. I can't concentrate. He's got a book open and he's reading. Right? Not reading that long, but you know, he, <laughs> 15 minutes. But he's still trying to read. I'm like impressed. So about halfway into it, I go back to the flight. I'm like walking around, trying to pace and stretch my legs. Bob comes back, and we're talking, and he says, James, I'm reading Generous Justice. I'm like by Keller. Oh, that's great. Yeah, how is it? And he said, according to Keller, deacons and deaconesses are ministers of mercy in the church. They're the agents that rally the church and equip the church, and serve the church, and help us serve the people who are in need in the church and in the community. He said, like, a few sentences. For me, like, I wanted to say, stop this plane. Time out. Wait a minute. At that moment, my ecclesiology changed. At that moment, 
my understanding of the church, my view of ministry shifted, and I couldn't stop thinking about this. I, I couldn't stop talking to Bob. We sat down for the next five hours. This is all I was thinking about. When Jason picked us up, all I wanted to talk to him about was deacons and deaconesses and mercy ministry. I said, Jason, did you know this? And he said, I knew this. Why aren't you telling me, Jason? <laughs> right? I was like angry at Jason. You knew this and you didn't tell me? Right? Well, he said, he just found out a few weeks ago. Still, as soon as you found this out, you should have called. Because this is so important. This is a game changer. That deacons and deaconesses are the ministers of mercy. And I felt so stupid. I felt like an idiot. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, right? I, I I didn't know this. Right? I didn't know... Right? Like, how come I didn't see this? It was so obvious. I mean, there's so, so few examples of this, really. I, I, I've never seen one myself. I came back, and then I, first thing I did is I read Alexander Strzok's book, New Testament Deacon. Now, if that name rings familiar, it's because he wrote the book on eldership. Right? Biblical eldership. This is the tome that defends Biblical eldership, what it is, qualifications, the plurality according to the New Testament. In seminary, this is the book that we read, right? This is a book that we use to train our elders. And he wrote a, comp, a secondary, second book, New Testament Deacon. Right? I don't know why I didn't read that. I don't know why they don't require this for reading. But this is so very helpful. Now, if we had our projector, I would have projected for you the quotes from Keller and Strzok and many other People about you just have to listen to it uh, today. Tim Keller said, Deacons had historically been designated to work with the poor and needy in the community, but over the years, this legacy has been lost, and instead, they have been involved into janitors and treasurers. Alexander Strzok, in his book, New Testament Deacons, wrote, My heartfelt burden is to help deacons get out of the boardroom or the building maintenance committee and into the people serving ministry. Deacons, as the New Testament teaches, and as some of the 16th century reformers discovered, are to be involved in the compassion ministry of caring for the poor and needy. The deacon's ministry, therefore, is one that no Christ-centered New Testament church can ever afford to neglect. Christians today must understand the absolute necessity for and vital importance of New Testament deacons to the local church so that the needy, poor, and suffering of our churches are cared for in a thoroughly Christian manner. This is a matter dear to the heart of God. He continues, among Bible-believing churches, two extremes threaten the New Testament diaconate. The first is to make the deacons the power brokers of the church. Would they rule the chief, they form the chief executive board? This blatantly ignores the New Testament facts about deacons and completely distorts the, the New Testament diaconate. The other extreme demeans deacons to nearly janitorial status. But the New Testament diaconate was never intended to be a building maintenance committee, but a mercy ministry. Oh, I mean, reading this book was you know, just fuel to my soul. It was like honey to my soul, fuel to my body. <coughs> it excited me so much. It excites me to this day because, you know, I, it's great. Africa is great. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we sent the team out there, a scouting trip to do work in Africa. India is great. Mercy Ministry there, uh, you know, PMI, CBC, you know, ABC, all of those things, great in India. But I'm a pastor of Cornerstone Bible Church. Right? I'm excited for what God is doing here. And the gospel says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. So if we have mercy ministry halfway around the world, and yet we're not caring for orphans, widows, and poor here, something is wrong with our philosophy of ministry, right? It's private victory versus public. Your family first, and then the world. Our church first, our community first, and then concentric circles going to reach the world. And yet my problem was, how do I do it? How do I do it? Because that is not my strength. That is not my ability. That is not my area where I can excel as a minister. I was, I was talking to Dan, and Dan was saying he loves our youth ministry, and he thanks God for Joe and Rosie and Jane and Shan for leaving our youth ministry. 
All the more because if Dan were to lead the youth ministry, he would kill it, right? Dan would kill the youth ministry. And I said, you would, right? (laughs) Because what would he do? He would teach, you know, covenants from the Old Testament, right? He would do exegesis of like, uh, of Ecclesiastes. Dan is great in some areas, but if he was a youth leader, he would destroy the youth ministry, right? They were literally like lead the church. If Bob and I did nursery ministry, Pebbles at Cornerstone, we would kill the nursery ministry, our kids would not want to come to Cornerstone because Bob looks so scary. Right. That's completely true. I don't even have to. Right. Our kids would not enjoy a nursery ministry at all. They would cry the whole time. Right? So my, my thing was, man, this compassion ministry, example of Christ, we want to do it here. But man, so like me, like I have some strengths, right? Like in basketball, I shoot well, I rebound poorly. Right? So I tell guys, you guys rebound, give me the ball, I'll shoot. <laughs> That's my, I play according to my strengths. So in the church, right, in the church, but now with deacons and diaconate, deaconesses being agents of mercy ministry, wow, that's so beautiful, right? I can play according to my strengths. And then, you know what's more beautiful? We have men and women already doing this in our church. It'd be so sad, like, man, we have no merciful people in our old church, <laughs> Right? We have no one like caring, compassionate, like who love people. We're all just like, no, we have people right now who spend their own money, hard-earned money to care for those who are in need. And they do it behind the scenes on their own. So where do you have people? So, so it excited me to no end, right? Talking to the elders and pastors and, 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 and the leaders. And we talked to our current deacons now. And, uh, you know, we made them deacons with our old paradigm where deacons were admin people, logistics people, right? And uh, we sent all their teaching material, share. We met with them, even though we told them we didn't need to, and they said we didn't, but we wanted just to make sure we're shepherding their, their hearts. And they were so great. You know, I, I, I speak the truth. I don't want, I don't, I don't want, I don't want ever spit anything. I want to share it honestly. You know, the problems that we've had at our church from the beginning, we've always shared our problems up front. Right? We never want to spin anything. The same time, the blessings of our church, I don't want to spin it either. And while our leaders are so great, they're, they're not men with agenda. They're not men with like pride and ego. And they want to hold on to their titles. They hold on to their ministries. They're possessive of their work. No, they're like, why well, we rejoice with this teaching? We agree wholeheartedly that it's biblical. And, we, and, we, and they felt they were playing out of place from the, from the beginning. They always felt uncomfortable with this title of deacons in the church. I likened it to uh, Michael Jordan, one of the best, I mean, he's the best basketball player that ever lived. Uh, Three-year reigning champion, and then he retired to play baseball, and double-A baseball, batted 205, couldn't even break out of the minors. And then he comes to the NBA, and what does he do? Wins three more championships, right? So likewise, these guys, these are excellent ministers, but they're playing in a wrong position in the church. And so they're struggling, they're not being fully used, but yet when they minister in their admin, logistics, administration ministry, they flourish. And that is why our church, except for today, the Sunday service, running so smoothly, right? <laughs> Maybe they are angry with me for taking away their... But outside of this service, running smoothly because they excel in, in functioning of the church. Right? So this is a, a whole new trajectory of our church. And we find this, and I don't know why... I'm, Man, I'm like slow sometimes. This teaching is in Acts chapter 6. It's not like chapter 26. You know, I understand, right? If this was in Acts 26, you know, I fell asleep at Acts 22. That could happen. But this is in the first six books of the New Testament, the history of the church. And I had studied it many times, taught it many times. What am I saying? Thousands. Maybe three sermons. I don't know. A handful of sermons. I got to watch myself. handful of sermons. I've never heard this. Looking at it now, it's so obvious. It's like one plus one is two. How could we have missed it? Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. Such an important passage for the church. Alexander Stock said that the church has studied this passage every six months because he felt it was so important. Now, it begins in verse 1 with a problem. There was a, there was a, a situation, a difficulty arose in the church that 
as the number of disciples were increasing in the city of Jerusalem. Maybe some say over 20,000 Christians now in the city of Jerusalem. This huge conflict boiled over between two groups of people in the church. Hebraic widows and Grecian widows. What are the difference? These are widows who came to Jerusalem, and some of them came to die in the city of God, to die in the holy place. Right? They were destitute. They were, they were struggling. Either they came with their husbands, their husbands died. Or they were alone. They came to the city because you want to go to the city because that's where you can get more help for themselves. And also they want to die in the holy city uh, for their religious reasons. <laughs> they're in Jerusalem and they got saved. They're Christians now. But there's still two groups of people. It's not Jews and Gentiles. They're all Jews. But the Hebraic Jews are the ones who speak Hebrew and Aramaic. And they're the Grecian Jews who are part of the diaspora. They were scattered throughout Roman Empire. And they were raised under a Greek-speaking family and culture and community. So their language was Greek. And so there was a definite cultural difference within this, this one church. Just like here... Right, some of you, some of you guys, you go to go home and your parents speak Chinese, and if you speak Chinese, everybody laughs, right? Because you're an Americanized Chinese, you're Ameri- Chinese American. Right? Some of you Koreans, right? Go to home, your parents speak Korean, you respond in English, and you can't speak Korean to save your lives, right? So there's Korean Koreans and Americanized Koreans. There's, there's Thai and Americanized Thai. Likewise, there was Hebraic Jews and uh, uh, Hellenistic Jews. And within this group, a a complaint arose because not the widows, but the Hellenistic Jews, they noticed almost every day the Hellenistic widows were overlooked in the distribution of food. It it just seemed like every time the the money ran out for the food, it was the Hellenistic widows that were still waiting waiting for the money. And so they're complaining against the Hebraic widows. Hey, let's you know separate. One day you go, I'm, I'm just a conjecture here, right? Let's find the equitable solution where we can all uh, uh, meet, meet our needs, our, have our needs met, but that's not what's occurring. So a complaint arose within this group. Now here was, I did this in the first hour. I'm going to do it here. There's some insight here that it's helpful, pertinent to the church government. I want to share with you a little bit of our hearts about complaining in the church, right? Now, Cornerstone, historically, right, and now, is a non-complaining church, non-complaining culture. Complaining is few and far between. If anything, people are overly effusive in encouragement, right? So my heart is we have people in our church. I said this first hour. I should have checked with my wife. Is it okay to say it or not? But I didn't, so I'm going to say it again. We have a church full of liars in our church because people are so encouraging to the leaders, so encouraging about my messages, about my humor, right? About my shooting abilities on the basketball court. Right? That can't be true, right? I'm not. So, so what happens is everybody's too encouraging where some of our leaders, like, they don't see themselves rightly because you're too encouraging, Right? They view themselves more hard than they ought, even me, me, myself included, because we're too encouraging, if anything. The reality is, for our church, we're a non-complaining culture. But how do we deal with complaints in the church? If this complaint was directed at the apostles, but it wasn't. If it was, I believe their response would be one of uh, non-response. Right? Non-response. Just like in a family, if my children are complaining against one another and there's division, we will step in with our children. What's going on? And then it's Eleanor causing problems again, right? So we'll deal with Eleanor and take care of that. But if our children are complaining against us, a whole different response, right? It's not a verbal response, let's say, right? It's not a spiritual response. It's a personal response, right? Likewise, in the church, if there's complaints within the church of division, and that's what's occurring here, the apostles will step in, the elders will step in in our church. But the complaints are directed against the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the church. You know, our historical response has been uh, the squeaking wheel does not, gets no oil because we are not a representative government. This is not a democracy. Family is not a democracy. 
They, they don't vote me as the leader of the family. And the church, likewise, not a democracy. I love democracy. I love our country. I'm all for representative republic government, but not in the church because we are spiritual leaders. And our accountability is with God, where we're given account to God for our, our lives. And our accountability is with a plurality of elders. We keep each other accountable. But once we cater to complaints in the church and we do survey polls where people share with us what they like and don't like, and we respond to that. At that moment, what comes into our hearts and our leadership, uh, uh, corporate heart, is fear of man. At that point, we no longer are servants of Christ. We're no longer standing for the gospel, right? We, are, we become uh, uh, politicians, right? Trying to please people rather than please God. As spiritual leaders, we see we're, we seek humility, we seek Christ, we seek the word, we pray, we speak the truth to one another, and we seek to honor the Lord and do what is right, but not cater to anyone in the church. So on your side, your response is, if there's a complaint within the church, you come and tell us. That's our responsibility. But if they complain towards the elders, then when you come, you know, you should you must never do this. That some people in the church have said this. A group of people have said this about the leaders. See, at that point, you've divided the elders and that group to a point where you're representing that group and we're representing the opposite side, and you're the mediator. That means you're, there's division. No, I must never. Then, then what happens is everybody represents their own little group or own little ministry, right? People represent the Pebbles ministry, right? People represent youth ministry. And so we foresee this possibly happening if we put a bid on a building and get a property. Everybody's going to represent their own group and say, hey, what's going on? That's not enough room for our nursery. Hey, what's going on? Right? That's near the 5 freeway, not by the 57. It's going to be more dry for me. Or some group is going to say, hey, what's going on? There's no basketball gym. I thought you promised us a basketball gym. Everybody's going <laughs> to represent their own group, and it's going to be divisive for the church. Right? If there is any complaint, pray for us. Right? Pray for us, knowing that our job is impossible. It's not hard. It's impossible. Right? Spiritual work, ministering to people's souls, dividing the word of God is not hard. It's impossible because the work, the word is perfect and we're imperfect. We're sinners. Pray for us. Talk to us individually. Right? Talk to us individually. And you got to make sure is this important enough? Right? Is this a significant issue? Not having a basketball court, should I talk to James? Right? And meet with him? And, and tell them what I think about a, not having a basketball court? Or am I, it's not a significant, think through that, right? So is it a major, and if it is a major issue, come to us individually and humbly, graciously share, this is what I think, right? Don't represent anyone else. This is what I believe. I could be wrong, my opinions, my thoughts. Please shepherd me, help me, and then we'll talk about anything and everything. All right, this is our hearts for our church. We're not hiding anything. We don't want to spit anything. Our hearts are wide open. We'll share with you everything why we didn't get a basketball court or why the church is in this location or why we made this decision. We'll tell you everything and then more and, and share our hearts with you and share unity with you. And you do that and then we'll grow together. Now back to deacons and deaconesses and mercy ministry, right? See, apostles got involved because this was an issue among, them, among the church with one another, not with the elders. Not with the apostles. Once, once this conflict arose and it came to their awareness, the apostles got involved. And the 12, verse 2, summoned the full number of the disciples. As they had a whole church meeting, right? 20,000. We've got an important issue to discuss. Let's all gather together. And they talked about this issue. And their conclusion was, it is not right, the meaning there, and trust me on this, if you read commentaries that will agree with me, the idea is it's not pleasing to God. It's not right before God's eyes. For us to neglect the ministry, the word and prayer, to wait on tables. Now, two things to say there. First is the priority of gospel ministry. 
ministry of the word. You do a concordance study of that phrase in the book of Acts. In fact, the whole New Testament, it is the gospel. It is not, they weren't exposed in the Old Testament. Right? They were not teaching on the law. They were preaching the gospel ministry. It was not, not right for them to neglect the ministry of the gospel and the prayer. And that's the f- forefront, priority, <coughs> ministry of the elders in the church. And it's not right for us to neglect that at all costs. That is what we are devoted to. That's what we are called to. And that is why the Christian church exists. The ministry of the word and prayer. At the same time, this ministry of waiting on tables is important. That second thing is the, the tables is trapezo. And literal, it means tables. But the metaphorical meaning is handling finances. Right? So New Testament church, they didn't have a big bakery where they fed all the widows. Right? Gave food every day. No, they were, they were doing social work where they dispensed finances, where the church gathered together, they gave money, and the, and the money was distributed among the widows every day for them to buy food and, and pay for things in their own lives. This It's a financial issue. That's why Matthew 9, uh, the, the, Matthew, the task collector left his table. It, it was the task collector's table handling finances. So the literal meaning might be waiting on tables, but were not like waiters, like wiping up and giving you water and bringing you bread and, and, and giving you lemon on your water. That's not their work. They were overseeing finances on behalf of the church. Right? The, the apostle said, it is not right for us to neglect the ministry of the gospel to handle finances because that's the most important ministry. But at the same time, <coughs> it is an essential ministry of the church. It is an essential ministry of the church. They didn't say, are you, are you kidding me? Right? We are 12 apostles. You know, our commission is to make disciples of all nations. Right? We're, gonna, we're being persecuted here. We're fighting for our lives. We have to spread the gospel all over the world. And you're coming to us about widows and caring for their food? Oh, come on, don't bother us with this, like, trivial needs. You guys take care of it and somehow manage it. We have more important things to do. That is not how they responded. They gathered the whole church and said, it is not right for us to neglect the ministry of word and prayer, but it's not right for us to neglect this ministry as well. It is an essential component of the Christian life and Christian ministry. Why? And we talked about this the past few weeks. It's the heart of God. Right? It's the heart of Christ. It's New Testament commands. Isaiah 1, Isaiah 58, Matthew 25. Our ministry of word and prayer. All our spiritual work. Is, is it hypocritical? If we do this and yet do not care for the poor. Care for the needy in our midst. God identified himself with the poor. And that became a reality in Jesus' incarnation. Jesus' incarnation, he was born to a poor family. He was born to a poor family. Where when Joseph and Mary offered sacrifice, when Jesus was presented in the temple in Luke 3, their sacrifice was two pigeons. In the book of Leviticus, you were supposed to sacrifice a sheep or a goat. But if you were so destitute, so poor, you couldn't afford an animal, God made an allowance of two pigeons worth a few pennies. Where the poor people would come to the temple and sacrifice to God. Joseph and Mary were so poor, they couldn't afford an animal. All they could sacrifice were two pigeons. So Jesus himself was born to a poor family. He experienced poverty. He experienced what it was to not be, to go without. Right? And so he in the incarnation, identify with the poor, and the command to the church was always remember the poor. Remember Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, we studied a few, few months ago, right? The Jews and Gentile controversy and the apostles' uh, uh, teaching to the church was Gentile Christians, don't stumble Jewish Christians by eating food sacrificed to idols, eating food mixed with bread, and sexual morality That's, that was parcel to participated in in, in pagan temples. And then secondly, their uh, exhortation to other churches was, remember the poor, right? Remember the poor. The apostles 
they saw this firsthand in Jesus' life. How he had compassion. He loved those who were in need and he cared for them. And so they made this, they understood this was an important ministry that must not be neglected in a Christian's life and the life of the church. So they didn't just um, circumvent it. They didn't just marginalize it. They said, we have to stay the course with word and prayer ministry. But verse 3, but because it is so essential, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The apostle said, choose from among you. This is the whole church's responsibility. We can't just get a committee and have them do the work. We must all take ownership in this ministry of caring for people. And from among you, choose seven men. All right? So we must be careful when we look at descriptives in the scriptures. The prescriptive, this is what happened. This is history. Right? So we must be careful. Is it just what happened or is it an example for us? Yes, it's only seven men, but in 1 Timothy 3, it's men and women. But the first group of deacons were men only. Right? It's not, and the number is just seven because the need was such. You know, in the second century, there was a church in Rome that had 100 elders, but only seven men, seven deacons, male deacons, because they said, hey, Acts 6, they only had seven deacons. Well, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Right? If that other needs, they might have made, had a greater number. So you must be careful to like read into something that is not really there. But what's the significance of only men in, in this group? Now, I'm partial to this. My, my view is this, and this is somewhat of me teaching and shepherding, maybe not direct exegesis, is uh, they wanted the men to take leadership in mercy ministry. Right? They wanted the men to be involved. Um, so growing up, one of my favorite shows watching that I used to watch was The Jeffersons. Right? Right? Love The Jeffersons. That opening music, man. Like you could have a revival in my room, listening, singing with George and Wheezy. Right? And like, I love that story. You know, he's made his way up and he's living on a high rise in New York and successful. Right? So George Jefferson, what did he own? What did he run? Yeah, particularly... Jefferson Cleaners, right? <laughs> right? So yeah, multiple, many, he's rich, he's well off. And his wife, Wheezy, right? She had older children in college age. She didn't have any work. So what did she do for, for spend her time? You guys didn't watch Jefferson? Come on. She helped, worked at the health center. She volunteered at the health, you guys remember that? Uh, she would donate goods and she would help people who were in need. And because she didn't have a job, right? But George, you know, he's doing important work. He's making money. Right? He's an entrepreneur. He's conducting business. His wife, she's got time. She could do work at the help center. And that's the mindset. Maybe that's common you know, in many people. And even today, you get involved with um, you know, charitable work. When I got involved with the foster system, with the, uh, the agency, it was dominated by women. Women were leading you know, uh, foster ministry. And the men that are there, especially the husbands, they're passive, right? They're quiet. They're there because their wives want to serve and wives want to help, wives want to pastor, uh, shep, uh, foster, and their husbands are just, they don't even know what's going on. <laughs> they don't even know, this is foster? Like, what does that mean? They don't know the rules or laws or anything. They're just going on off the ride. And the women are all over the place. And they're strong women, right? And then weak men. And that's not just fosterism. That's, I think, a lot of charity organizations, right? But not the church, or we can't see it as, oh, let the women go do orphan ministry. Oh, let the women do widow work. We'll do word and prayer, right? We'll shepherd, right? We'll talk theology and lead the church spiritually. And the women can do a mercy ministry, right? No, right? Apostle said, it's a responsibility of the church, responsibility of the men. We must spearhead this. They chose seven men. And truth among you, Men who meet these three qualifications. They're men of good repute. They have, they have good reputation. They're trusted by the church. <clears throat> and they're already immersed and engaged in this ministry. They're known to have compassion and they're effectively used to serve people. Second, they're men full of the Holy Spirit. They're not like legalists. They're not like men walking with a swagger. 
look how much I'm doing, you know, making people feel guilty. They don't want to put a spotlight on themselves. For all their, they're not full of the law, right? They're not full of themselves. They're full of the Holy Spirit, which is full of Christ, which is full of the gospel, because the Spirit's work is to point to Christ, right? So full of the Spirit means they are full, filled with Jesus. They're filled with grace. They're filled with, with the gospel, they're full of the Spirit. So they're doing it out of joy. They're doing it as a thrill. It's not duty or drudgery or out of, out of sense of obligation. They're doing it with freedom. And they're full of wisdom, right? They're innocent as doves, but uh, uh, wise as serpents. Why? Because, you know, it's get involved in this ministry and people want to take advantage of you. And, and there's all this hard tugs and you can be so unwise with handling finances and you could use that money in a, in, a, in a wrong or foolish way. We need men who be wise to distribute church money to maximize um, the benefit of, of as many people as possible. I choose from among you men who meet these three qualifications so that, verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer, the ministry of the word. Verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, 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 Parnamis, uh, Nicholas, a uh, proselyte of Antioch. Right? Verse 6, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. So they was an official capacity here. These weren't just volunteers. They had prayed for and laid hands on Matthias to take over Judas's place, right? And here is an installation of a new office in the church, deacons, right? They, they, they prayed for them, and they formally recognized them and gave them authority in the church by laying hands on them. And so in the church, there are two offices, elders and deacons. And you find the origin here in Acts chapter 6. Now, there is some debate, right? Some people say that these aren't in Acts chapter 6. Now, good teachers, men that I trust and respect, are both sides. And they just disagree. Some men say they are, some men say they, they aren't. The, the two reasons that they say that they're not deacons is, first, they're not given the title of deacons in the church. They're not called deacons in the church here in Acts 6. Secondly, two of these men, what they were doing is not the work of the deacons. Like Stephen, he preaches the gospel, and he's not a deacon. He's a pastor. He's a prophet. He's an evangelist. He's an elder because he preaches, and it's so powerful. Right? Deacons at their church, you know, they, they can't preach well. But this guy, so he can't be a deacon. And Philip is an evangelist. In Acts 8, he brings the gospel to Samaria. He's always bringing people to Christ everywhere. He's not a deacon. He's an evangelist. Therefore, these men aren't deacons. I, I would say, no, I, I, these men are deacons. This is the original deacon ministry. It doesn't make sense. Luke is an expert historian. Why would he devote the pages in his book to recount this instance about widows in the New Testament church? What's the reasoning? If not, to teach the church where deacons originated from. Where do we get these deacons from? There's no other passage in Scripture that tells us about deacons except 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, and that's just qualifications of deacons. There's nothing about their work. Nothing. Why? Because Paul knows in Acts 6, Luke covered his territory. He doesn't need to tell people what they were doing, what they're supposed to do, because it's already taught. His concern is, are they qualified men and women? Right? See, the church understands where elders came from because elders are from the Bible and it's from the synagogue. So everybody knew the origin of elders, but deacons, where did it start from? And Luke is given an account of how it started and what they were to do. And so churches knew from Acts 6, this office of deacons, and every church would face this issue of people who are in need in their congregation and in their community. And they would know how to respond. Oh, we have poor people, just like Acts 6. And what are we to do? We are to go before the church and raise up from among them men and women who will devote themselves to mercy ministry. This was a pattern for all churches. And church history proves this. That in the early church, for 300, century, 300 years, right, the New Testament church abounded in deacons and deaconesses who were doing mercy ministry. 
And yet that got lost. The gospel got obscured and religion took over and the gospel was lost for the you know, um, Middle Ages and so forth. And the Reformation took over. And the reformers understood and deacons became uh, mercy agents as well. But that's, the, that's from uh, New Testament as a church history. And also about this title of deacons and deaconesses. It's true they're not titled deacons in uh, Acts 6, but the, the, the verb and noun, diakonia and diakoneo appear in this passage. In verse 1, serving food, that Greek word is diakonia. In verse 2b, in order to serve tables, that's diakoneo, the verb. Right? It's a verb participle uh, based on deacons, diakonoi. So the title is missing, but the word appears twice describing their work. So to me, it's plausible that they didn't t- give them the title because Luke is just describing what happened. They commissioned them to the work of deaconing, of serving. And I wouldn't be surprised, very next day, someone called Stephen a deacon. Someone called Timon there, Deacon Timon, right? Why? Because they were serving. You're a servant, official capacity from the church. So the title came later because they were just focused on the work. And by the time Paul wrote 1 Timothy, it became an official title for this ministry. That is why it's absent. I mean, I have more, um, I mean, from Cranfield and A.J. Hoyt, I'm going to, uh, I told the first service as well, I'm going to attach my study in our website. And if you love like Greek and exegesis and reading like difficult words, it'll be there for you to further uh, show that these are deacons mm-hmm. of the church. Alexander Strzok concludes the deacons are collector of funds, distributors of relief, agents of mercy. They help the poor, the jobless, the sick, the widows, the elderly, the homeless, the shut-ins, the refugees, the disabled. They counsel and guide people. (coughs) They visit people in their homes. They relieve suffering. They comfort, protect, and encourage people. They help to meet their needs. In contemporary language, they are the congregation's social workers. Their work, though often hard and exasperating, is most precious in God's eyes, for He is deeply concerned about the poor and needy. This is pure and undefiled religion, declares James. Caring for the needy is essential business in authentic Christianity, yet the needy are often neglected and even despised. This should not be. The local church must care for the needy members and the community, and the diaconate is the official church body responsible for this task. That's Strauss' conclusion, and I agree, and, the, and our, our leaders agree. And so, as soon as they did this, what is the result? Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. The gospel, verse 7, went forward, and more and more people got saved in Jerusalem. And then here is that description, the ending of verse 7. Great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, that's priests came to the faith. Why is that so significant? In Acts 4, the priests were leading a charge against Paul, uh, Peter and John. They were leading persecution against the Christian church. They hated Christianity. They were against Christianity. In Acts 6 verse 7, many of these priests came to faith. Now why? Maybe a little bit of conjecture here. I think it's because the priests, it was their responsibility along with the Levites to care for the poor and widows and needy in the, in the Jewish nation. In the Old Testament, right, the responsibility of caring for the poor was given to the priests. In the Old Testament, there's three leaders of the nation of Israel. There's kings, prophets, and priests. And kings, they are leaders, organizers. They're the ralliers. They're all about fighting battles, building walls, building kingdoms, raising money. Prophets are the ones, thus saith the Lord. They're all about truth and theology and right and wrong. Priests, they're the ones who love people. They have a tender heart for people because they're always sacrificing for people. They're always, always hearing people confess their sins. They have a tender heart and they're always sacrificing on behalf of you. They're, they're people, people, right? And their responsibility was to care for the poor in Jerusalem, but they were overwhelmed with that work. And when they saw the Christian church immerse themselves in caring for widows who are 
like orphans, marginalized, who were neglected greatly. They saw the church care for widows. Their hearts melted because their hearts were with the, the, the suffering. And they saw the beauty of the gospel and priests came to faith in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that marvelous? And um, let me do a lot more conjecture here. Let me kind of stretch this a little bit to our context. And, uh, and um, you know, discern if, it's, if it makes sense or not. But I think historically, you know, in our, in our, in our society, there are like generally two groups of people, the red states and blue states. Uh, they're the conservatives, Republicans, who are all about individual rights, individual responsibilities. And then there's the liberals, Democrats, who are all about community, our corporate response to individuals. We need to care for people, a social welfare, help people in their need. And there's a big like, debate and controversy between these two groups. The church is often seen as a place for a civil religion where we lean to the right. And we're more about individual responsibility, individual rights. And Republicans and conservatives have co-opted Christianity by and large to their side. And it's understandable because we're about truth. We're about more about responsibility and quote-unquote morality. And so the church, when we present the gospel to the liberal people, there's a big wall. It becomes a stumbling block to them. But when a church abounds in mercy ministry, when the church goes beyond their four walls and stops being insular and they care for the people that the, the Democrats, liberals care about, then they see the gospel in a whole new light and they see the beauty of the gospel, not just in its truth, but in its compassion. Historically as a church, it's been a, Easier place for Republicans, conservatives to be in our church. Right? If you're leaning towards them, being a Democrat or a liberal, it's been a harder place. Right? And when we reach out, we're much more effective towards conservatives than liberals. I think this is God's heart. He desires all men to be saved. He, he does. He desires Republicans to be saved. And you know what? He desires Democrats to be saved. Some of you have a hard time believing that, but it's true. His heart's with them. And they have a legitimate concern for people in the world. And we've been wrong about many things, especially here. So as, a, as, as our church, by God's, God's will, grows in truth, but also mercy. Grows in theology and holiness, but grace and love. I, I, would, I would hope to see us reaching a greater group of people in a larger spectrum where they see uh, the truth of Christ, not just in our statements, but in our action. A um, few closing thoughts with our time remaining. Um, this is one, one of, if not the first, tangible fruit of the gospel in our church. Right? It's one of the first tangible fruit of our church, gospel fruit. For Many years now, we've been sowing the gospel from the pulpit in our small groups, care groups, second hour, and, and 115, every, every retreat, every opportunity, we've been sowing the gospel. And I think all of us are concerned, what are we going to reap? What's going to come out? Right? A lot of, I think some, some amount of trepidation in all of our hearts, the, the varying measures about what's going to be produced by this sowing of the gospel without imperatives without the emphasis on, on commands and just gospel truths. And so the gospel bears its fruit, and you know you buy a fruit from the store, and there's only, way to find, only one way to find out if it's sweet or not, good or not. You've got to take a bite. You've got to take that bite, and you bite, and you go, oh, man, this is you know, rotten, sour. It's not sweet at all. And you want to go to the store and return it, right? So, that's not right. Give it to your kids. <laughs> it's good for you, right? So here we... This fruit is produced in our church and we all took a big bite in the past few months. And I think we're discovering this is something that we haven't even imagined. I had no idea that the gospel would do this work in my heart, in our church. I had no idea that with the fruit that God produces through the gospel will be this beautiful, this sweet. 
mercy ministry, compassion, deacon. I had no idea whatsoever. It came out of nowhere. And we take, partake of this fruit and it is so sweet and so beautiful. It's so right. And so I think it's God telling us, telling, telling us and telling me, keep sowing the gospel. There's more sweet fruit to come. There's, no be- there's more beautiful fruit to come. Keep sowing the gospel. And this it really is a game changer for us. Right? This truth, I think this is what um, saves us. I mean, aren't we tired of like just upper class Christianity here in Orange County? Or we just go to each other's birthday parties, go to each other's kids' birthday parties. We go eat out. We talk about movies. We talk about food. We talk about sports. And we just do these care group meetings to study the Bible and, and pray and learn more about the Bible and pray and learn more about the Bible. Aren't we, like, tired of that? I mean, it's killing us, all this truth and all our affluence. This is the fruit of God that rescues us from this cultural Christianity. Where God has shown us uh, His heart to the gospel, where we're able to show the beauty of the gospel, not just in word, but in deed, where we can abound in good works here, right? Immerse ourselves in good deeds, where we have fellowship gatherings, not to go see a movie together or not eat together, but we can gather together to serve the poor, care for the orphans, help widows in our midst, and then people will see our good works. It will be salt and light and give glory to God who is in heaven. Right? I think this is um, will bring balance to our church. I think a church where it only has elders and pastors, the church is unbalanced because spiritual maturity is only seen as theology and prayer. right? So mature Christianity is just praying more, reading the Bible more, reading more books, knowing Greek and Hebrew, going to more seminars, that's Christian maturity, and we don't have deacons. But when you have deacons and deaconesses presented before the church, where we see a balance, maturity is word and prayer, definitely, but it's also mercy, it's compassion, it's sacrificial living, because others are in need, and I think it'll bring a greater balance and depth to our church. And finally, uh, I think this is where the gospel is so important. See, let's see another church hears this teaching and they add deacons and deaconesses as ministers of mercy in their church. I would say there should be much caution there because if the leaders of the church, the members of the church are not rooted and grounded in the gospel and you add deacons and deaconesses to do mercy ministry because of the endless need that is out there, because the profound and the, the gravity of the need that is out there. Church history has shown that churches, like all these mainline denominations, and parachurches have gone liberal, have lost the gospel in the process because of the great poverty, the great suffering that is in the world, where over time their gospel commitment becomes diluted and it becomes a social work ministry, church uh, 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 organization. This is why you can't just tag on this teaching to a church or to a life. It'll lead you to either guilt or pride. That's why gospel-centeredness is so important. We've understood that the gospel is not what saved us, but it's what is continuing in our lives. So our identity is not based on our works. Our identity is based on Christ's work. And through that, we add mercy ministry I think by the grace of God, we can do both. We can keep the gospel as a first importance. At the same time, immerse ourselves headfirst into caring for the poor. And at the end, we'll have the gospel, but also have compassion ministry for the lost as well. So again, come back. How do, I resp- how do we respond to this? Remember Christ. Remember your high priest. You have heart for people Jesus had a greater heart for you. You love people. He had a far greater love for you. He died for you. And now he lives for you so that you might die to yourself and serve others. You don't have to fear who's going to care for me if I start caring for the poor. The gospel says Jesus is caring for you and he will care for you. Let us pray.
Oh God, we uh, give you thanks for uh, the beauty of your church and the, the, the wisdom of, the, of Christ's church. And Lord, uh, we see how we're all just living stones being built on one another. But the foundation is Christ. He is all and in all. And Lord, we uh, just consider it a privilege to be a small part of your work here in our church and your work throughout the world. Lord, we uh, look forward to just what you will do uh, here at Cornerstone. We look forward to uh, how you will build up your church according to your will. And uh, we ask, oh God, that you would um, just give uh, wisdom to the leaders of this church and you would give grace to each member and that we would, uh, all that we do, whatever we do, we would do it uh, with the gladness of our hearts in Christ. We thank you and pray all this in your son's name. Amen.